Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist and also author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is The Mental Health Gym, and it is your source of information about all things related to positive psychology, wellness, rejuvenating, and becoming the best version of yourself at whatever point in life you are. Those of you who are frequent listeners to the podcast know that most of our episodes involve interviews with interesting, informative, and achieving people who lead their own lives enthusiastically and can help us in leading ours. Each of them tends to bring a different perspective to the program, and we are really looking forward to today's program because we have a guest who has an especially unique approach to living life with enthusiasm. Our guest today is Sean Rosensteel. He is an intentional living coach. He is the author of The School of Intentional Living and founder of the Intentional Living Academy. Kind of noticing a theme here. So I think one of the first questions when we get started will be about what intentional living is. Sean lives in Dallas with his wife, Karen, and they have three children. Sean, it is such a pleasure to Welcome you to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Looking forward to this interview. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. I appreciate it. Okay, well, let's uh, get started with the concept of intentional living. Again, I came up about three times in my introduction, and I suspect some people may have an idea of what it means, but so we're all starting in the same place. How about you? Talk to us a little bit about what intentional living is. Sure. I'm happy to share with you my beliefs and my opinion on what intentional living is. But, you know, full disclosure, I think it's important for each and every one of us, of us to define what intentional living means for us, right? It's kind of like, well, what is the definition of success? Well, it depends on who you ask, <laughs> right? So back about 10 years ago, I had a little bit of a wake-up call in my own life and I wanted to live a more intentional life. I wanted to find a way to be more purpose-driven and, and, and lead a life of significance, so to speak, and just do a better job at being a human being. Um, because for the first three decades of my life, I was quite complacent. I was very unintentional. And I kind of showed up in the world in a way that everyone expected me to do so. And what I eventually discovered, because I, I started to research, you know, how do I start living intentionally? And I, I found quite a few pieces of information that, that steered me in the wrong direction. I remember one time I, I bought a book. I'm an avid reader, and I bought a book about living a purpose-driven life. And it was a great book, but it was coming from a place of Christianity. It had a lot of Christian undertone, and it was a lot of gospel. And I wasn't really looking for that at the time. So I had this association with intentional living, like, oh, it must be, it must mean something religious. But again, that wasn't what I was looking for. And then I read another book on, you know, this law of attraction, woo-woo stuff, so to speak. And my little brain couldn't quite comprehend that. And I'm like, well, that's, that's also not what I'm looking for. So I think many of us, when we think about this subject of intentional living based on our pre-existing associations, we, 
we may or may not get get turned off of it, right? Just mm-hmm. because of some of the things that we've learned. So eventually I discovered that I need to really forge my own definition of what it means to me to live an intentional life. And the moment I did that, uh, everything changed for me. I finally discovered and identified what it was I wanted from my life. I discovered you know, how I wanted to show up in the world. Um, I discovered what success meant based on my experience, my unique circumstances, my situation versus what everyone else was telling me, you know, success meant, so to speak. So for me now, after about a decade's worth of, of research, very intensive research, for me, intentional living means simply, you know, doing the best you can with with what you've got. It means living in alignment with your personal values and, and your beliefs. It means making a difference in the lives that you love, lead, and, and serve. And ultimately, it means leaving this world in better condition than when you arrived, right? Growing up, my grandmother, we as kids used to run into a room and my grandmother used to say, hey, you know, never leave a room in worse condition than when you found it. And I kind of like to use that metaphor of the room uh, for the world, right? I think we're all here for a reason. I think we're all meant to, you know, serve others in certain unique ways, small ways, big ways. And I think one of our duties or responsibilities is to figure out how we can contribute in our own unique ways so that when we ultimately, you know, go back to wherever it is we came from, (laughs) right? None of us really know. But when we do return to wherever we came from, we can just leave this, you know, leave our small little mark on the world and, and hopefully make a difference in a positive way. Well, that sounds really, really interesting and really positive in line with, with our philosophy. But I'm wondering, do you how do how does somebody get in touch with that concept? In other words, do you kind of have to I, I don't want to say hit rock bottom, or is it something that uh, everybody really has knowledge of below the surface, but they're just too busy? Or, you know, it, it sounds like in your case, there was a, a specific time that things changed for you. Is that kind of the way it happens, or can you do it kind of developmentally, or how's that work? Well, based on my experience, Ron, I find that there are two types of people when it comes to intentional living or or living a purpose-driven life. The first one experiences what I would call like a slow burn, right? There's a story uh, of a dog uh, sitting on a porch and the owner's there with a rocking chair and a neighbor comes up to say hi and the neighbor notices that the owner's dog is whimpering. So the neighbor asks the owner, why is your dog whimpering? And the owner says, well, because he's sitting on a nail. And the neighbor says, well, why doesn't he just get up and move? There's plenty of space in your porch. And he's like, the owner said, well, it just doesn't hurt him enough. Not in enough pain where he'd prefer to move. He'd just rather stay put. So I think a lot of us experience this slow burn. We know we're playing small. We know we can contribute more. We know, you know, we have an ambition to, to learn and to grow and to develop and contribute beyond our current circumstances. But sometimes that's not enough. And the mistake I made was I got stuck thinking, asking myself a question, you know, what is the purpose of my life? What am I doing here? Where is this all going? What is the meaning of my life? And as you know, being a positive psychologist, you know, when you ask yourself certain questions that 
aren't very good. Your brain, you know, either can't find a decent answer and you'll get stuck and it's this incense loop of, of question asking or you'll get an answer that isn't so good. So when I asked myself, well, what is the purpose of my life? I could never discover that. I could never, my brain could never come up with an answer that solved for that. So what I eventually did, Ron, was I put two little magical words at the end of that sentence structure and I started to ask myself, what is the purpose of my life right now? What that did is it helped me to be grounded in the present moment and to help me keep focused on the activity at hand. So I was no longer stuck in wonderland. I was like, oh, well, the purpose of my life right now is to be at the breakfast table with my children and with my wife and enjoying a meal together. Or the purpose of my life right now is to be here present with you on this podcast. Not worried about lunch, not worried about tonight's plans, but to be here now. So I'm a student of Eckhart Tolle's, right? He, he wrote that, what I believe is an amazing book, The Power of Now. And he talks about how the future, you know, we can worry over the future, but it's nothing more than present moments that haven't taken place yet. We can be stressed or depressed or feel guilty about the past, but the past is nothing more than present moments that have already occurred. And all we really have is, is right now, this present moment. So I experienced that slow burn for a while. And, you know, eventually I just learned how to ask myself better questions to help me kind of refocus. Because what happens is the power of the compound effect, right? You have some really powerful present moments for days and weeks and months and quarters and years in a row. And all of a sudden you, you feel like you're on the right track. So that to me is like one of my experiences, this, this slow burn. The other is like a big event. It's like this inciting incident that you might experience in the first 90 seconds of a movie, right? There's like this huge explosion. The, the, the main character's life is in peril and you get sucked into the story. So some of us have those moments. I think this pandemic, for example, is one of those moments. You know, I think this pandemic is forcing a lot of people to kind of wake up from their slumber and, and, and understand, okay, here's where I arrived. You know, am I where I want to be in life? And, you know, does the future look the same as it does today? Or do I need to create a more compelling future for myself? So for me, I had a wake up call 10 years ago. I grew up with a very conventional idea of success. To me, success meant big homes, fast cars, fancy toys, status, material possessions, keeping up with the Joneses. And that was really all I knew. And that was my focus in my late teens. And basically throughout my 20s was to acquire money and, and, and possessions and to grow my net worth. And I made a lot of careless and very negligent decisions to accelerate my wealth. And eventually I went bankrupt when I was 28 with my first business. And that was a wake-up call for me because I almost felt like my identity was stripped away everything I knew, everything, all the things I thought I was, was basically just stripped away in that moment. And what I came to realize was that financial bankruptcy was the least of my concerns. I was physically bankrupt. I was mentally, emotionally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. And there's no reset button for those things in life that matter most. You know, you can reset your financial column, but you can't reset your relationships. That takes a long time to repair and to rebuild. So it forced me to look at some other aspects of my life that I had previously neglected. And it also forced me to begin figuring out, oh gosh, how do I, how do I recalibrate here? How do I get my life back on track? How do I dig out of, of the hole I have dug for myself? So I think some of us do experience these big wake-up calls. Some of us lose loved ones. Some of us lose our jobs. 
or some of us lose a client or some of us experience a, a major health crisis. That can certainly do it. But I think the misconception is that purpose will find us. Like something externally will come in and force us to take our lives a little bit more seriously and appreciate our mortality. But that thought scares the you know what out of me. You know, the thought that someday I'm just going to walk out and you know, purpose is going to smack me in the face like a ton of bricks. You look at some of these people out there who are living purpose-driven lives and they've experienced some serious struggle. You know, they, they have lost loved ones or they lost their limbs in a rock climbing accident. I mean, some of the stories are incredible. I eventually began to think, well, I don't want purpose to come find me. I need to go seek this out. <laughs> you know, I need to go on the offense. It's like that old quote by the ancient Roman poet Virgil death twitches my ear, live, he says, I'm coming. So these days now, because I was so, felt like I had a bulletproof, very immortal attitude. And, and a lot of teenagers have that. Well, I carried that into my 20s. For the first three decades of my life, I didn't take life very seriously. But for the past 10 years, I've been very mortality motivated. I've been very kind of thinking from the end type of a mindset. And that's really helped me to focus and hone in on, you know, what are some of the things that really matter most in my life? And, and, and how do I live in a way that when I reach the final moments of my life, whether that be tomorrow or in, you know, hopefully 50, 60 years from now, I'll be proud. You know, I'll be proud of the life I lived. I'll have minimal regrets. Um, one of the big books that has inspired me was Bronnie Wears the Top Five Regrets of the Dying. She was a palliative care nurse. And she helped hundreds of patients for years in the final weeks of their lives. And after so many conversations, she started recognizing similar trends and similar patterns. And she said that the top regret, the number one regret that she heard most often was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not one others expected of me. And when I read that, I'm like, holy cow, I'm, I'm really living my life based on everyone else's expectations. But how do I begin living life on my own terms based on what matters to me the most? Because I certainly don't want to get to the end of my life whenever that is and experience that number one regret. Well, it sounds like you're in a really, really good place at this point. But I'm wondering, uh, is it hard work, you know, to kind of change the mindset and to become, you know, fully present? I know I'm this this actually a, a timely interview for me because in a couple of days I'm going to be presenting on mindfulness and being present in the present moment. And uh, one of the things I point out is there there's a difference between mindfulness and relaxation. It's not necessarily, you kind of have to stay conscious of what's going on. And I'm just wondering if you, after three decades of uh, not being present, is it hard work? Was it hard work for you to to get to this point? Certainly. I mean, there's a lot of behavioral change involved, which isn't easy. There's a lot of psychology, you know, psychological thinking change, which isn't easy. And don't let me fool you, Ron. I'm still a hot mess on occasion. <laughs> you know? So I'm far from perfect, but perfection isn't necessarily what I'm going for either, right? So yeah, I think it is a, a lot of hard work. And I think it does involve some behavioral change. But the, the big shift I made 10 years ago was I almost became addicted to learning and growth and personal development. I, I didn't have a very good experience with learning and education back in my formal education years because I could never figure out the relevancy 
of what I was learning. You know, I would learn something, regurgitate it on the test, and then forget about it and move on to the next thing. And I wasn't very interested in school. I was a very poor student, and I'm being generous when I say that. I really struggled. But I started to realize once I made it to a certain age, for me, that was 28, 29, 30, is I fell in love with learning and I fell in love with growth. And I, and I recognized, wow, you know, okay, I have an addiction and I have a desire to overcome that addiction. And I can tune into education. I can plug into a book or plug into a course and I can apply the lessons I learned and, and get the result I'm looking for. And it actually means something to me. It actually can improve my life in a very significant and empowering way. Um, so a big shift for me was just appreciating learning and, and, and application, and I would almost call it mastery. Uh, that, that really helped me to, to make that shift and understand, wow, if I treated life almost like a game, if I treated life or, or, or if I treated life like a school, I can really go out and get some relevant and very relatable and very um, impactful education. We're, we're sitting in the middle of the information age. You know, what mind boggles me is that we have more wisdom in the palm of our hands, access to it, than previous generations did. They, they were limited to the local shelves in the library. And here we are with, you know, Mr. Google or whatever it is. And now a lot of the information isn't very good, probably the vast majority of it. But there, there is some really great information out there that can really give us those breakthroughs and give us those changes that we're looking for. So I feel like we're living in the most opportune time in the history of the, of the planet right now, smack dab in the information age. And it comes with its downsides. There's a lot of distractions, right? Distractions are running rampant. I call them the weapons of mass distraction. Most of them involve a screen. However, if we can focus, if we can reduce some of those distractions and get focused and discover what it is we want, the beauty of defining and identify, identifying what we want in life is that all of a sudden, the world conspires with you. You know, all of a sudden, when we know what it is we want, the right solutions appear. The right people magically show up. You know, the finances finally come through. So for me, what, what really changed and, and, and one of the ways I look at intentional living is I needed some proof. I needed some science behind some of my research. So while I found a lot of religious connections and I found a lot of law of attraction, woo-woo connections, um, which I appreciate today and I value and I believe in today, What's interesting, Ron, is that one of the most impactful pieces of information I found on the topic was located in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Remember, though, that was like the internet when I was growing up. I was going <laughs> to say, I imagine you don't have to explain it to too many people, but I'm sure there are some out there. That I still do on occasion, but that was my World Wide Web growing up. So anyways, uh, a few years back, I found a piece of information in the physiology section of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it talked about this little function in our brain called the reticular activation system. And it's this function in our brain that helps us to identify things in our environment that will help us either survive or thrive. And what's amazing is, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, and my brain has a hard time comprehending this, but our five senses are taking in 11 million bits of information every second of the day. 11 million bits of information every second of the day. And our conscious mind, our conscious mind can only capture 50, five, zero of those 11 million bits of information a second. So if we define and identify what it is we want, that's activating that what I believe is the most 
powerful technology in the world. I always say like the most powerful technology of the world is located right between our ears. So when we can activate this function, this reticular activation system, it'll allow us to identify and find and seek out what we want in our environment. It's why like when we're in the market to, to buy a new car, all of a sudden people on the road, we start noticing the same, you know, make, model, vehicle, color, of car we're looking to buy, or maybe you're in the market for a new pair of shoes and then everybody walking on the street has those exact pair of shoes in the same color you want. It was always there. You know, the universe I've come to believe is a very abundant place and it was always there for us. We just weren't paying attention to the right things. Maybe we were focused on what's wrong. You know, maybe we were focused on what's wrong in our environment versus focusing on what's right or, or what's good. I mean, you know, I think it's, very common, for example, to, for people to think in terms of what can go wrong rather than thinking in terms of what can go right when they face a challenge and that holds them back from, from pursuing it. Well, with your emphasis on learning, I guess it's not totally surprising that you wrote a book called The School of Intentional Living and you got the Intentional Living Academy. What made you select kind of the school approach and how how does what how you use school, uh, is it just a title or is there something about your use of those terms that is kind of unique in, in this space? Sure. Well, I've been wanting to write a book about this topic for many years. I've been coaching it and teaching it very privately for about six years. And that recommendation was made, you know, many, many times. Hey, you should write a book. You should write a book. And while that idea was exciting to me, I always thought, well, how in the world am I going to approach this topic and write a book on intentional living? It's such a broad, I think, very misunderstood at times topic. Well, late last year, this idea hit me like a ton of bricks, and that was to, to, to use the school metaphor because it was so relatable. As I mentioned, I'm an avid reader, and I really love authors that make whatever it is they're writing about relatable to me. So one of the things I knew I had to solve for if I wrote a book on this topic was how do I make it highly relatable to the reader? And what I discovered was that, gosh, the lessons that I'm applying in my life today in my late 30s were inspired greatly by my formal education experience. When that idea first hit me, I strongly disliked it <laughs> because I didn't have a good experience in school. It was a very awkward time in my life. As I mentioned, I was a horrible student. And you couldn't pay me $10 million to go back. You know, I, I'm so grateful that I'm beyond school. I just didn't have a great experience. But at the same time, I had to give credit where credit was due. So that entry point into this topic of intentional living is what helped me to move forward with this book writing project. So for example, the first chapter in my book is called Subject Areas. And back in school, we had subject areas that we were responsible for. Maybe we had five or six subject areas, math, language, science, whatever they were. The point is, we had to be in a constant state of balancing those six areas, let's say. We couldn't pass five of our classes and fail one. We couldn't progress to the next grade. We couldn't just pass one and flunk all five, same net effect. Well, in the real world, we have life areas. We have our health we have our wealth, we have our relationships. Those are what I would call the primary areas of life. And then we have some sub areas. So within our health area, maybe we have our spiritual or religious health. Maybe we have our mental and emotional health. Maybe we have our physical health. The areas of our life that matter to us today, that's up to us to decide. Like back in school, especially early on, we were told 
what we needed to pay attention to. But now that we're mature adults, we get to decide what matters to us. So we have areas of our life that we need to continually improve upon and pay attention to over time. And it's not necessarily about you know doing well in one. Like we all know business moguls who are wildly successful in the business world, but their family life is in shambles or they've overlooked something about their physical or mental or emotional health and they've got a major crisis on their hands. In my 20s, I went Mach 10 with my hair on fire in the finance and business area of my life and I feel like I lost everything else. I feel like my whole world was you know, crumbling down around me because I had a single pointed focus. So it scares me to death today, Ron, that you know, I, I'm ma- married. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary. My wife and I have three kids, seven and under. It scares me to think that I will, you know, work 80 hour weeks and pay so much attention to my business that one day I'll wake up and my kids will be gone. I wake up one day and my kids have left the house and I missed that chance. I missed that opportunity, you know, to teach them and to guide them and to influence them and to, to have good rapport with my children. It scares me to death that I may overlook my health for the next 10, 20, 30 years and I'll reach age 50 or 60 and have a, an issue I can't come back from. So I think there's this misconception that work-life balance actually exists. And in my experience, it's a myth. It's a destination that you'll never arrive at. And I think it's more of a verb. I think it's about being in a constant state of balancing, right? I just taught my two older kids how to ride their bikes over the summer. And my older son, was he, he, he fell the moment I let go of his seat. And then my daughter, who's two years younger, figured it out like on her third try. So that was like really good motivation for my older son, who's two years older, to, to figure this out too. But I was I had to tell him, look, you need to stay in motion in order to achieve this thing called balance, right? Like the moment I let go, when you stop pedaling, when you stop moving forward, you tip over and you crash. It's the law of balance, the law of momentum. So the moment you have to have faith, you have to trust, you have to keep moving forward, stay in motion, and you will then stay up on both two tires. So it's no different for us. It's like we have to be in that constant state of balancing everything. So bringing the reader through that idea of subject areas kind of helps. I think it's a strong metaphor to use when we're talking about all the different areas of our lives that matter that we have to pay attention to. Those to me are targets I need to hit as I age. And they shift, they change, just like subject areas. You didn't learn the same thing in first grade that you learned in high school. Those things change over time, but it's on us to discover what those are. And then we'll just talk about chapter two and then we can stop. But the second chapter is about progress reports. So back in school, I hated progress reports because they would always tell my parents what I already knew, which is I was doing poorly in in my subject areas. And the result was I'd get grounded. So I hated those. But those progress reports served a very important purpose. They gave us an opportunity to course correct our grades before report cards came out. Report cards were like rear view mirrors, like we can't change them. But those progress reports gave us that awareness necessary to make those course corrections. Well, in the real world, as we age, a lot of us do that once a year. We take inventory at the end of the year, beginning of the year, we create these crazy New Year's resolutions. And by February, we've forgotten about them. So I always encourage people to, to create those progress reports on a more regular, more frequent basis. So it gives us that awareness we need so that if we begin to slide in certain areas, we'll give ourselves that opportunity to, to make those adjustments before it's really hard to change something. And I talk about this idea, the GPA of your life. 
So I like to use letter grades versus numeric scores. I've taken a lot of personal development programs over the last decade. A lot of them are brilliant. The one common flaw I see is these thought leaders are asking us to use numeric scores, one through 10. You know, rate your marriage or rate your relationship, your significant relationship on a scale one to 10. Well, I was putting sevens in there for months and months and months, Ron. And I'm like, I feel good about a seven. I like the number seven. It's kind of a cool number. <laughs> you know, it's okay. My, my marriage is okay. And then I started to translate that into a percentage. And I realized that a seven out of 10 is no different than a 70%. It's like a C minus. And what does a C mean? What did it mean back in school? A C meant average. That's what a C translates to. And for a few years in, I thought, oh my gosh, I have an average marriage. And I didn't get married to have an average marriage. I want to have an excellent, outstanding, amazing, passionate relationship with my wife. And if I don't make a change, that C could easily slip to a D. And eventually it may slip to something I can't come back from. So I, I wanted to raise my standards in that area of my life. I no longer wanted to have a C minus average marriage. I wanted to have at least a C plus, you know, at least a B minus. So using letter grades, at least for me, gave me a more objective, more accurate reading. I could understand that better. And it helped me to take action more effectively versus like a seven out of 10. That to me was comfortable. So it just sat there and it really never compelled me to make a change. And what's neat is when you use letter grades to rate the areas of your life that matter, you can then calculate your overall GPA. And here in America, that stands for grade point average. It's a cumulative holistic snapshot of how well you're doing overall. And I don't think that getting a 4.0 is the goal. I don't think perfection is the goal. The whole point of that exercise is to just give yourself that awareness. A Abraham Maslow, who I believe is one of the greatest American psychologists of all time, said that in order to change someone, you need to change his awareness of himself, right? So I think awareness alone can be a very powerful igniter for change. That's really fantastic advice, John. And I think listeners of the podcast or people who have followed my website will see a lot of similarities with the concept of the mental health gym, that basically life is a work in progress. It's not like somebody goes to the gym and they reach a point and, okay, I'm fit now. I'm I don't have to go anymore. And I think it's the same kind of thing here that, you know, if you're a lifelong learner, you're going to do a whole lot better than somebody who isn't. I'm real impressed with the school metaphor. Just a couple of quick things about specific populations. I'm wondering, uh, number one, if somebody is listening who's a parent, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And most kids, uh, aside from not listening to the podcast, probably will have a hard time incorporating the concept just on their own. But there may be some things that parents can do to kind of sensitize their kids to, to thinking in those terms. Well, it sounds like you've got quite a laboratory with, with three young children. I'm wondering what things you're doing along those lines. And at the other end of the age spectrum, you know, I run into some older people who feel, who use what I call the two excuse, T-O-O, -O, I'm too old or too emotional or too something is... It's the same question. I hope uh, hope you're processing it as something that I, I'd be interested in hearing about at both ends of the adult age spectrum. 
What what is it, Ron? The, the that famous quote from from C.S. Lewis. I think he said something like, "You're never too old to set another goal or dream another dream." I may be paraphrasing, but I, but I'm a big fan of of C.S. Lewis and and some of his you know more noteworthy quotes. Um, so yeah, as far as parenting, my wife and I, you know, th- this approach, we use this approach in our household. We use this approach together for our for our marriage, for our family. I oftentimes have spoken about this concept that a household is no different than a business, and people don't like to hear that. But you know, you have two leaders and managers at the top, and then you have people, your kids, and you have a culture and values you're trying to instill. And you can't furlough your kids. <laughs> you know, you can't fire your kids. But you've got upper level leadership and management. You've got your children. You've got a culture. You've got budgets. You've got income and expenses. You've most likely got a vision, whether that's communicated between the parents or not. Like, help me understand the difference between you know growing a company and growing a family, or, or growing a vision for your household or whatever it is. So my wife and I use a lot of these lessons that are in this book together, and uh, you know being a Father is probably one of the biggest privileges and, and, and you know blessings I've ever had, and and frankly, uh, I learn more from my three kids, seven and under. You know, they teach me more on a daily basis, Ron, than I than I teach them. I, I'm always amazed at their zest for life, and I'm always amazed at how present they are. You know, it's like we'll we'll be like, kids, dinner time, let's go, let's go, and they're like, I'm sitting here playing with a leaf, <laughs> like. There's nothing better in the world than this leaf right here in my hands. I got everything I need. You know, they could go on for three days without drinking or eating because they're just so immersed with the activity at hand. You know, they teach me so much about presence and just being joyful and appreciating what you have. So, yeah, I learn a lot from them. But, you know, my approach I learned from Dr. Wayne Dyer, who's been one of my greatest mentors of all time. And he always encouraged people to practice the approach of non-interference. So, so I like to just try to not interfere as best as I can. And then when, when they need my help, I try to provide guidance to the best of my ability. But kids are funny. I mean, I, my daughter, who's five now, two nights ago, she asked me, what happens when you die? So it's like, well, how am I going to handle? <laughs> how am I going to approach this one? And I was raised in a Catholic environment. You know, my parents are Catholic and I was raised in a Catholic household and my wife's Jewish. So she was brought up practicing Judaism. So we kind of have this interfaith spirituality mix happening in our house anyway. We're going to, you know, we've got the Christmas tree, we've got the menorah, all this stuff. And and so it's like, well, how am I going to approach this one? So I gave her an answer that I was somewhat satisfied with just to see where she would take that. She thought for a minute and then she's like, can I paint my nails with the sparkly toenail polish tomorrow, dad. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, oh, thank goodness I'm off the hook here, you know? So you never really know where they're going with things. It's just been such a joy and such a privilege and such a blessing to to have those three in our lives. And again, I think they teach us more than, than we teach them on a daily basis. And my biggest goal is to let go. I have three older siblings. I'm the youngest of four by a wide margin. My dad always said I was a pleasant surprise, but I always knew better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And so I have a lot, I was an uncle at a very early age. I have a lot of nieces and nephews and I've seen my older siblings struggle through so many things, especially through the teenage phase, 
that I know is so difficult in the early 20s phase. And my biggest goal is to let go and to detach from, from certain outcomes because I look at my life and the choices I made and the lessons I learned, like I wouldn't be who I am today if I didn't make some serious mistakes along the way. And I think as much as we can teach them, sometimes you have to let natural consequences take place. I'm a big fan of this idea of natural consequences. So my kids at their young age, these are simple things. So for example, our kids will leave the light on and we ask them over and over and again, can you please turn the light off when you're no longer in the room? So they'll continue to leave it on. So what will we do? We'll just unscrew the light bulb just a, t- just a little bit. And now they won't have a light. And we'll let that go on for a few days. We'll see what happened is you left the light on when you weren't using it. And now the light bulb burnt out and it lo- no longer works. And we don't have light bulbs. We'll have to go you know, get those shipped. We can't even go to the grocery store right now. We're all in lockdown. So you're going to have to wait two or three days for, you know, Mr. Amazon to show up with new light bulbs. And they're like, oh, come on. We don't have any light in our room. We have to get dressed in the dark. We have to go to, you know, it's like, yeah. You know, there's a reason I was asking you to turn the light bulb off. So I'm a big fan of natural consequences. And you can obviously create those natural (laughs) consequences for your kids, right? But it's really hard. And I've seen my parents and I've seen my siblings struggle with kind of letting go and maintaining your peace of mind despite the fact that your kids are doing something you ask them not to do. I think that that's one of the most difficult things in the world, especially as they get older, as problems get more significant. And, I, and I'm trying my best to practice letting go and non-interference and detaching from the outcome today, because when I'm 60, when I'm 70, it's like my peace of mind, my happiness, my joy, like I'm going to protect that. So I'm trying to get myself in that habit while they're young so that I can hopefully continue practicing that but easier said than done. And I, and I appreciate and recognize how difficult that can be as we all get older. Yeah, but it's terrific advice. And I think it will pay off. I mean, the fact that you can appreciate them at this point and continue to practice what you're practicing probably does as much as any of us can ensure that you will have the connection as they grow older and as they comes time to leave and so on. I think that's certainly becomes one of the the joys of the older years is to, to be able to have a family that, you know, has uh, reflected the and provides the rewards of some of the things that you're you're doing at this age. And the way I look at it, Ron, is like, you know, I'm a big fan of legacy. You know, like, what am I leaving behind? And I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who are like nine to five career folks. Like, well, Sean, I'm, I'm not an entrepreneur. You know, I don't have a book. I don't, you know, have this, that, the other thing, but they have kids. And, and my belief is that legacy first and foremost is forged within the four walls of your own home. So I, I my, my mom, you know, growing up, my mom was always like, parenting is the most important job in the world, <laughs> you know? And if a big reason why I do what I do, why I get out of bed in the, every morning and why, you know, I don't even need an alarm these days is because I want to leave the world in better condition than when I arrived. And I think the the first way, the first place you can begin to do that is, is in your own home, is with your own children. Yeah. And it's such a, uh, such a reward if you are able to maintain those connections when they don't have to be holding to you. And, and that's really a, a major definition of a positive legacy. 
as usual in these podcasts, we come to the end much too soon, but I'd like to find out a couple of things before we wrap things up. First, you've given us lots of tremendous advice, John, but I don't think I've established what do you actually do on a daily basis and, you know, what products or services do you offer to others? I'm sure that lots of people are impressed by what you have to say, but how can they access it? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I do have the book. Uh, I sell a digital copy of that for a significantly reduced rate on my website. I also offer the audiobook for half off for people who would prefer to listen than read. And then I also offer basically three different ways. If someone reads through the book and they discover that, hey, this, this is relevant for me, this is relatable, I really like this approach... Um, I have an online course called the Intentional Living Academy, and that's really for people that are more of the do-it-yourselfers. And that's just got great, you know, deep dive training and implementation guides and tools and mindsets and habits and some really good stuff that will support the reader on a deeper level. And then I have a group coaching program. I call it my accelerator. And that's where you get access to the course, but then you also get access to me once a week on a 60 to 90 minute group coaching call where you can come in, ask your questions. And then I'll usually deliver some mindset trainings from time to time. And then I have a more intensive training where it's more of a private one-to-one 12-week training that I offer as well for those people who want access to me direct and they don't want to necessarily be a part of a, the group environment, right? Well, we will have all the contact information in the show notes. Uh, What is your website? How do people begin to get in touch with you and find out all the wonderful things you do? Sure, thank you. Yep, it's just seanrosensteel.com. And I won't bore your listeners with spelling that. Hopefully you'll have that in the show notes. (laughs) But it's just my name, seanrosensteel.com. Yeah, and Sean is S-E-A-N. I I think the Rosensteel sounds out pretty well, but... I know you can do Sean many different ways. Yeah, Sean was uh, spelled the Irish way, as my mom likes to put it. And then my last name, Rosensteel, is actually German, but it sounds Jewish. My whole life, people are like, oh, you're Jewish. And I'm like, why do you people think that? You know, but Rosenberger, you know, Rosen, anything is, is you know, oftentimes Jewish. But uh, yeah, it's, it's actually a German last name. And it was very easy for me to marry into my wife's family because they all just made assumptions. <laughs> you know? I was going to say, uh, I wondered, <laughs> does your wife know that you're not Jewish? Right? Yeah, I, I snuck in very well under the radar, especially with some of the older people in her family. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, Sean, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you. I really appreciate how open you've been, how generous you've been with your ideas. And I hope we'll uh, we'll do this again sometime. And again, we'll have all the contact information in the show notes. So as we draw to a close, I hope that all of you will download, rate, podcast, uh, review it, visit Sean's website, and consider continuing the learning from him. He's a lifelong learner, as we hope all of you are. Uh, This has been Dr. Ron Kaiser with the Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser podcast. Again, we hope that you will visit the website, the Mental Health Gym, where among other things available to you, we hope that you'll uh, suggest guests for future podcasts. Uh, This is a podcast that's being broadcasted early in 2021, and we hope that This year, 
we will see the end of kind of the limitations that we experienced last year and have the opportunity to experience the kind of growth that John has shared with us in a less restrictive environment. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay positive. And once again, thanks very much, Sean. This is Dr. Ron Kaiser signing off until next week.